0: Today we are going to talk about a man called Naaman. I've been wanting to talk about this for a little while and then uh, I was uh, wide awake when we were away in Wales last week, about five in the morning. And, uh, so I followed an instruction that somebody gave me which was uh, what to do when that happens and I did it and I journaled which was the instruction uh, and, and then I looked at this passage and suddenly it all came alive. So I thought, okay, that's good. Let's talk about that. Now, if you've been in this house for a little while, none of these things I'm going to share with you are new, in the sense of neos. new. We've been talking about neos and kainos, which are the two Greek words for new. Neos means kind of new in a time sense, the very latest thing. Kainos means new in terms of freshness. So things can be new, even though they're old, because they come in a new light. Um, so they may not be neos new to you, But I believe as I share them, they will be kinos new to you. There will be a freshness to them, which I think is going to be really important for many of us. So we're going to go through the story and we're going to pick out a few bits out. And there's, yeah. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So, It's a story about a man called Naaman, and we learn a couple of things about him at the beginning of the story. The first thing we learn is that he was a great man in the sight of his master. His master is the king of Aram, uh, the king that he fights for, and his master, the king, thought he was a pretty great guy. And of course, for many people, being seen highly by their master is a really important thing, whoever your master is, whether that be a, uh, a boss at work or whichever else where you see it. Um, And it's not necessarily a bad thing to be seen well by your master. In fact, in terms of working, then I think we should be presenting ourselves well to those who are above us. But there's a different question I want to explore, which is really this. Whose sight is most important to us? Because in the sight of his master, he was great. But I wonder what he was like in the sight of his soldiers, in the sight of his wife, in the sight of himself... We are seen by many people, and many people take a view of us. Some people even tell us what they think about us, whether we want it or not. But but whose view of you takes priority? And who are you most interested in impressing? Because we've got to learn to see ourselves as the Master sees us. The Master, Jesus, of course, sees you as beautiful, amazing, awesome, fabulous, talented and wonderful, but not because you did it on your own. Romans 12 and verse 3 says this, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. You see, for some people, we go one of two ways. We either think of ourselves much less than the Master thinks of us, or we think of ourselves sometimes a little bit more than the Master thinks of us. And Paul says here that we've got to think of ourselves soberly, More highly than you are. And as you go on in life and as you go on in the kingdom and as you start to help people and as you start to see change in people's lives, people start to say nice things about you. And you have to understand that they're not really saying it about you. They're saying it about Jesus in you. And so as you go on and as you help people, you have to learn every day, I think, more and more soberly of yourself to know where you came from. Paul says that grace was given to him and through this grace he's able to think of himself in a right way in accordance with the faith that God has given. Everyone's been given grace and everyone's been given faith. It's by grace that we are saved through faith. So grace came to you and in that grace was a gift of faith, a measure of faith, and that helped you to believe, which all came from God. Not only that, but God's put with you certain abilities, gifts, talents, potentials, he's given you a gift set. And as you exercise faith in it, it starts to grow and it comes out. So I know that any gift I have to help people came from Jesus. It's not mine, it don't belong to me. I just got given it as a gift to use on other people's behalf. That's the reality. But you have to keep reminding yourself all the time. So the gifts I have in all sorts of places and all sorts of ways, they are mine but they were given to me by God to be used how God wants them to be used, when God wants them to be used. But what's amazing is how quickly many people forget that these all come from Jesus. It seems it's incredibly challenging for some people to think so, of themselves. Time and time again you see how God blesses, raises people up, does significant things, puts incredible gifts in people by his grace. And then sadly those people think that somehow, oh I did it, it's because of me, I'm so gifted and talented and there's no one else as wonderful as me. Of course they don't say that, but you see it. And it kind of taints everything that's good. But Paul was saying that grace enabled him to be and do what he was and did. That same grace was helping him think in a sober way. Then there's the other side of the spectrum where people refuse to see themselves as the master sees them. They discount themselves, disagree with his opinion of them, and choose to constantly speak a different story over their life. Instead of using the faith to better it, but then get cocky about it if you like, They don't use the faith on the inside of them to actually grasp what God says about them. But there's a way to use the faith that you've already got to see yourself as the Master Father sees you and then keep humbling it. There is a way to do that, and it's through the grace that Paul talks about. But whether we tend towards thinking we are wonderful or we are more likely to think the opposite and think we're not wonderful, the challenge is to see ourselves in the sight of the Master in the light of his grace. You are wonderful and awesome because of him. You have fantastic gifts because of him. You are where you are because of him. You are promoted and and, and, and enabled to do things because of him. Of course, you used it, but it started with him and it'll end with him. And while you keep that in mind, you will have a sober judgment of yourself. Paul, in another letter in the Bible when he was talking about his ministry and the way in which people spoke of him, said that people around and about measured themselves by themselves. And he said in doing so, they were making a great mistake. I often see people doing this. We, we look around and we go, right, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing better than them and them, but I'm not quite there yet. And Paul goes, no, no, that's unwise. To measure ourselves, themselves by themselves is unwise. We seem to think that the measuring stick is the community we are a part of, but Paul says that's not wise. 2 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. And and I see this as well. Some people, they kind of, they get upset because they get loved in different ways by the same person. And they get upset about it. And they go, "Well, well, you did this for this person, but you did this for me. Okay, yeah, but are you that person? No. So would I do the same thing with them? No. It's simple. It's simple. We love people. I, I love my kids in all the same way, but I treat them all a little bit differently. Why? Because they're all different. <coughs> you can't treat different people the same way and expect they're all going to flourish in the same way. Yeah. It just doesn't work like that, does it? So let's stop comparing what somebody else gets and what somebody else do not get and whether I get this much time. Well, oh, they got an hour there and they got an hour and a half. Like, well, let's just, first of all, it's not what to do with you anyway. And second of all, let's just let us be loved. Let's just, just let us be loved. Let's not compare ourselves with ourselves because Paul says it's not wise. And if you want to compare yourself with anybody, put yourself next to Jesus and then decide how well you're doing. That might give you a sober judgment. But we know that although Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, a great man in the sight of his master, he had leprosy. He had a weakness. He had a problem. And I've never met anybody who did anything great and wonderful who wasn't just like you and me. Yes, they had great victories. Yes, they had great days. Yes, they'd done incredible things. But there was always something that was their weakness, a place of vulnerability, of suffering, of pain. Naaman was a leper, which means he has a, in the Bible, it's used as a wide-ranging term for some sort of skin disease. In the worst-case scenario, your skin would literally eat itself. But it was used for a wide-ranging kind of skin disease. So it wasn't just a weakness, it was a weakness that had actually been inhabited by illness. And sometimes that's what happens when we don't deal with our weaknesses. Often there can be something internally, and if you don't deal with it, it can actually start to weaken your physical frame. But you are a human being, which means you are not good at everything. You are a human being, which means you're not good at everything. It means there are things you cannot do, and that is okay. And you've got to learn to be at peace with that. There are some things you're brilliant at and some things you're just downright rubbish at. That's okay. It's just okay. What's not okay is to pretend that you're really good at everything when you're not because then you look like a wally. You just do. So why bother? But we have to deal with our weaknesses. We have to bring them in the light, confess them, get them out there, identify them, want to do something about it. Once that happens and it's in the light, the enemy can't use it anyway, but if it remains hidden and secret and you pretend it's not there, he just steals your strength away like he's leprosy. But you have to know, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm great in the sight of my master, but am I good at this? Not really. Okay, well, I should, probably should find somebody who's better at it than me and get them to do it then. Because somebody somewhere is good at it. You've just got to find them and have the humility to release them. So the story moves on. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a lie to the king of Israel. We have to start to understand that God uses anyone everywhere. This is a servant girl who had been an Israelite, taken captive by foreign warriors, made to serve on a foreign woman. But in that place she understood the need to serve, and at a service gave her a voice into their household. She was listened to, that meant she must have served pretty well. Imagine if she'd not served well. Imagine if she'd taken the home, I'm a a servant girl, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit here and be upset because I'm a servant girl. No, she served. She was like, I'm here, and I'm going to serve. Even though she was in a foreign land with nobody around her, she chose to serve, which gave her a voice, which brought healing to somebody else. See, there's always someone behind every story. There's always someone who God uses, a a hidden hero, a deliverer, somebody who keeps a low profile and a humble heart. But listen, that could be you. That could be you. You might not be the one who goes and heads up this huge thing. You might not be the one who goes here, there and everywhere. But behind all those people are a ton of other people. And without those people behind them, it don't happen. We are going to get some huge surprises when we get to heaven about who God really rates. And I can tell you, most of the people who we rate and make celebrities won't be on the top step if there is one. Honestly. I'm, I'm almost certain. I don't think there is a top step, but you get what I mean. Like, there's people who you might look at and go, what did they achieve? And they go, well, I prayed every morning for an hour. And because of that, God goes, yeah, 100 people every year came into the kingdom. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But we, 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 we fall into our culture of celebritizing people who do good, big things and great things. Like, God just does not work like that at all. So it could be you. Which is why we have to stop saying we're insignificant and don't do anything for God. You realise the moment you smile at somebody, you've just acted for Jesus. You smile at somebody. Because everybody else walks around looking miserable, don't they? Honestly, smile at somebody on the bus, you might have made somebody's day. It's not hard. You were the solution to somebody's problem. They might not know it, you might not know it, but you are. You have an assignment from God. You were the key to a door that needs opening. Of course, to do that, you need to know your birthright. We're told she was from Israel. Maybe she knew she was from God's land the land of the living, that was a status, that was a birthright. She might, be a, she might be a servant in her household, but maybe she knew in her heart that she was a son to a father, a daughter to a father, even. But she was serving. You could be a hidden hero too. As you serve and give, perhaps you will have a moment where God will use you to deliver someday. But this little gem of a girl, she was, she was on it. She wasn't, just, she wasn't just getting by or interested. She, she had an ear out. What's going on? What's happening? I know, I could be some help. And then she spoke up. When she had a moment, she spoke up. I think a lot of time we know there's moments, but we don't often speak up. <coughs> it seems that Naaman had also learned to recognize people. Because a servant girl told the wife, the wife told her husband, Naaman then told his master, the king. When God wants to bless you, he often sends a person in your life. When the enemy wants to hurt you, he often sends a person in your life. So it's vital that we learn to recognise who's with us and who's not. Those who are with you, we've got to learn to look after them and bless them. Because they walk with you. If you do not look after them, you show them that you do not recognise them or honour them. And they may well exit your life and enter someone else's life who will look after them and will honour them. It's really important. There might not be many people who walk with you. But we've got to learn to look after them and honour them. Let them know. It's not hard I just say thank you. It's not hard to send a card or a bunch of flowers or a gift voucher or offering round. It's not hard to do those things. It's not hard every time you meet him to say, I just want to say thank you. But we've got to let them know. Name out some people who are with him. And we know it, not by their words of delighting him, but by the way, actually did. This is how you know people are with you. It's by what they do, not what they say. Because they stood up for him. The girl opened her mouth and spoke. The wife heard it and shared it. The king got out his pen and wrote a letter. They all actually did something. They didn't just go, oh yeah. When somebody's with you, they show you by what they do for you. That's the test of whether people are with you or against you. How do they act? And once you've recognised whether they're with you or not, then you can start praying to what to do. Because Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. He, they just say they're either with you or they're not. And then, that doesn't mean to say that there's a certain course of action. Then you've got to go, okay, I've realised this person, they're not really for me. Well, then you've got to ask what to do about it. Because it might be you have to pray for him, It might be you have to keep some distance. It might be you have to get close to them. But you've got to listen to Jesus because there's no past, past rules about it. But you've just got to know, does this person give me life? Are they irradiate or are they drain? Do they warm me up or do they just suck life out of me? So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. Naaman understood that to get something, you had to give something. He did not expect everything for nothing. Because loads of Christians have believed this lie that says God did everything for nothing, and we should do the same. They expect everything's free. But although God gave freely all that he is and has, it cost a great deal. It cost him his son. That's how much you're worth. You're worth his son. Nothing is free. Everybody costs somebody something there's no such thing as anything free because somebody's paid somewhere. That's the reality. Nothing's free. Somebody's paid a price. And of course, to receive what Jesus has done for you, you don't need to pay anything, and yet to get what he has for you, it will cost you something. Because to get something from Jesus, you have to give something up. Naaman came with the right attitude. He didn't think he should just have it for nothing. He didn't presume that it would be free. He was ready to pay something for what he was going to receive. And in the end, Elisha, if you read the story through, says, no, it's okay, I don't, I don't want anything. Which is Elisha's right. It's Elisha's right to go, no, it's okay, I don't want anything. It's not Naaman's right to decide whether he's going to offer him something or not. It's Elisha's right to go, no, thank you. It was not the right of Naaman to give him nothing. It was the right of Naaman to want to give. But what's interesting is what it will cost. Because as you read in the story, as we will do, Naaman is prepared to give financially, but he isn't prepared for it to cost him other things, like his pride, his reputation, and his dignity. Because of his reputation in the army and the high regard the king held from him, I'm guessing money wasn't really an issue for him. He probably had lots of it. So the price he was p- for him to put on what is it, ten talents of silver? He's probably like you getting twenty quid out of your pocket, all right, or, or a fiver out of your pocket. It's not a huge cost to you for him, and this is not not big. He was prepared to pay a price, a cost, but a cost that he had already predetermined at a price that perhaps didn't cost him too much. He'd got a price in his mind. I'm okay. I I know it won't be free, but I'm prepared to give all this money because that doesn't really mean much to me. But as you see in the story, he gets asked to give up his dignity and his pride. And he doesn't want to pay that price. See, it's not about paying a price, it's which price are we going to pay? What cost are we willing to give up? Because to be healed, to receive something from Jesus, will always cost, and often in a way, that perhaps we are not initially prepared to pay. For Naaman, the cost would be his pride and his dignity. And I've seen this many times. People who declare they're prepared to pay anything to get something from Jesus, to get a breakthrough, to see a miracle, but there are nearly always conditions on it. For many people, many, many people, it's about what it looks like. In fact, I would say the vast majority of people are more concerned about how they are seen by others than the hour we've been healed. That's the reality. For, for many, many people, the more concerned, well, you want me to come out to the front, well, everybody's going to see me, and I don't know what's going to happen. Well, that's a price you're not prepared to pay. Them. That's the reality. That's the reality. You go, well, I, I will be healed, but it's got to be in my house where nobody's looking in a way that, okay, well, that's the limits you're putting on to them. That's the price and the cost. I know, because I've done it. I've been there. And I understand it all. And that's okay, by the way. That's okay. Just know that that's the reality. Just be honest about the reality. Don't tell me you're prepared for Jesus to do anything if you're actually not. You've just got to be real about it. Just be true about it. This was Nehemiah's issue. His pride, as we'll see in a minute, was initially greater than his desire to be well. But to birth something new costs, and every birth is different. Some are long and arduous, others are very quick and cause less pain, though they are still painful. No mother can control the nature of a birth, but they choose to go through it to receive a child. You know, when you get pregnant, that it's going to be painful. Even if you have a caesarean, it's not going to be nice because you've got to heal afterwards and that's painful and you can't do anything for weeks on end. And you can't choose whether this child pops out in a few hours or whether it takes three days. But it seems when it comes to birthing something new in us, we want the kind of quick pop-out in two hours or not at all. But if you want God to birth something new in you, if you want to see new birth, maybe you've got to give up the way that birth's going to happen. Maybe you've got to be prepared for it to happen how he wants it to happen. If you want something new birthed in you from Jesus, you must be prepared for that birth journey to go any variety of ways. And if you're not prepared for that yet, that's okay. That's okay. Lots of people go, I'm not not ready for a baby yet. I'm not in this place, that's okay, that's fine. I'm not ready to give birth yet, that's okay. That, nobody, nobody berates people because they're not in a place to start a family yet, do they? Nobody gets up, like, that's, that's great. Better to do that than have a child that you're not really ready for and don't really want. Like it, Mentally, I mean, like, that's okay. But just know that's where you are. And I have asked a number of times for various breakthroughs and each has cost me something greater and cost me a price I've never paid before. But each time I got it. And that's not just because Jesus is mean to me and doesn't want to give it to me. It's because to receive means we must move in faith. I remember one time, it was just after my first wife, Angela, died and I felt like God said, if you want Adam, you can be healed in 50 days of the majority of the grief. And I went, okay, I want that. But part of it, and, and that, was, that meant giving over anywhere. Anyway, it meant crying in tears in everywhere. It didn't just happen in my bedroom at night when I am on my own. Grief can hit you at all these different points. So I didn't go, Well, Lord, as long as it's not in Asda, or as long as I just went, No, I want to be healed, man. I don't care where I'll be, a, I'll be a snotty mess. I don't care. But most of us do care whether we're a snotty mess. I remember another time, really, uh, just some deep pain from a long way back, and talked many times, and I'd kind of hidden it right down with Paul and Faye. And, and I remember one time, like, on the floor, middle of a Sunday morning meeting, crying my eyes out, snot everywhere, howling, absolutely howling. But you know, I got off the floor, it had totally gone. Because I was marveled about being healed with my dignity. I don't care, I want to be well. No, but I really, really don't care. But most of you, oh yeah, but oh, it's on video as well. Anybody could be watching, yeah, they could, they could. nearly everyone I know wants to be healed of the pain but nearly everyone sets limits and that's okay I'm that's not, I'm not, not a judgement that's okay, that's just being real about it that's just telling the truth as to where we're at just don't blame Jesus for not being healed if you've put limits on how he heals you because that's not fair And recognize that isn't how Jesus works. Be honest, admit, you do want to be healed, but you want to be healed in the place, time, and method of your choosing. Well, 2 Kings, chapter 5, verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you'll be cleansed. But Nehemiah went away angry He said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God to wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And a banner of Farplar, the rivers of Damascus, and I've no idea, so that the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. He wanted to be healed his way. He wanted to do it how he wanted it to happen. It was a simple instruction, but his predetermined thoughts were getting in the way. He wanted his healing to come his way. There are very few people who like instruction. Nearly everyone wants God to personally come and give them an answer. Or if not God, the man or woman who most represents God to them. Elisha sends a messenger. It's like you organising a meeting with Paul and Paul sends somebody else in his place. He says, oh, just tell them this. And they give you one line and they say, that's it. That's what happens. What do you do? Most of you would get upset. And very few of you would go and do instantly what the person told you to do. The truth is that the instruction you follow, or don't, determines the future you create. And most instruction, certainly in this house, comes as a suggestion. If I'm talking and sharing with people, I very rarely go, this is what you've got to do. I generally go, well, why do you this? Have you thought about this? Why don't you try that? But if you're listening, it can be an instruction. Some of you have sat in discipleship groups and, and not the person who's leading it, but somebody else has just said, Well, well have you thought about this? And you've gone, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. Well maybe just maybe that was a hidden hero right there for you yeah. in your life. Well, because you didn't like who said it or how they said it or you don't like them because you've got some ridiculous beef with them then you, you well, they come. I tell you it's more likely God to use them than anybody else just to prod you yes. <laughs> and just to teach you I listen more carefully to those people that I struggle to get on with than I do the ones that love me most because I know God's more likely to say it through them if you do not follow an instruction you will not move forward Neman didn't like the way he was being treated, a messenger, not even the great big man of God, an instruction, no great performance, no big show. This of course was a religious mindset that was hindering from receiving what God had got. There he was, the threshold of a whole new life dimension, access had been granted, healing was ready, God had already done it, all he had to do was to walk into the instruction and do the simple thing that had been told which was walk to the river, get in, get out seven times, that was it, that's all he had to do. But it wasn't how he thought it would happen. It wasn't his way. It wasn't in his pattern of thoughts, not according to his mindset. So he refused, and he remained unwell. Interestingly, Naaman was used to issuing directives and commands. He told others what they should do, how they should do it, and when they should do it. He was his own boss. He liked things. He was used to things happening his own way. But when somebody told him what to do, he wasn't happy about it. What was the last instruction you received from Jesus? Naaman's reaction to the instruction highlighted some underlying issues. Accountability, submission, humility, stubbornness, anger, to name a few. There are very few people who really know what it means to submit. Submission, as Paul has said many times, cannot begin until agreement ends. An agreement can only start when submission has taken place. Let me flesh that out. Submission is not finding logical agreement about a certain something. Submission is not going, oh yeah, I agree with that. No, that's that's agreement. Submission is doing what Jesus said without argument, and it always involves love and trust. Submission is going, I don't understand it, but I'm going to do it anyway. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm going to do it anyway. I can't see how it'll work, but I'm going to do it anyway. That submission agreement is, oh yeah, I think you're right there. I think I can say that, and I can logic it all out, and it makes sense to me. That's agreement. Submission is, I don't get the clue, foggiest, what that means, how it's going to work, but I'm going to do it anyway. Interestingly, his, res- his initial response brings him into isolation, loneliness, and separation. He says he went away angry, turned and went off in a rage. Do you realise that your responses could be responsible for your present state? We must learn to recognise our deliverer. When you have a need, God sends a person. When you have a problem, God sends a person. When you have a dilemma, God sends a person. Nearly all the time God sends people because he chooses to work in partnership with you and with me. So, we have to learn to recognize those around us, those he sent to us, those who can help you and release you in a whole new dimension. I believe that we all already have the right people around us if we'll just actually listen to everybody God puts in our way and take time to listen, which means being in places where people can talk to you. Because if you ain't there, you can't listen. Obedience releases the Spirit of God. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him to, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. As soon as he did what God asked him, and it was God that asked him, although it was just a messenger, as soon as he did it, it released the Spirit of God to manifest the required solution. Obedience is the thing God has ever required from men and women. Naaman was healed and cleansed when he obeyed the instruction God had given him when he gave up his arguments, and when he was prepared to pay the price God had decreed, as opposed to the price he had thought of, his healing was manifest. Now I want to finish with an illustration from uh, my own life. I could tell you many stories of instructions followed and the costs and all that, but I want to finish with a story of an instruction it took me a while to follow. Because I want you to know that I don't always get this stuff right. Sometimes uh, I, don't, I don't do it instantly and straight away. Sometimes it takes a while. And this was an instruction that Paul gave a little while ago, and it was to put up the journey of Little Daisies, uh, which is the business we have downstairs, on a, on a wall downstairs. So it was to... He said, I just think you should put up, like, you know, pictures of it being transformed and, and write about the journey. And we, I kind of went, okay. And he said, it, it'll do something. And I went, what's that going to do? In my head, I just went... I'm going to stick some pictures on a wall, and that's going to bring a breakthrough. Like, I, didn't, I couldn't find agreement. Neither did I submit, either. Badly. It just, because I couldn't see the value in it, because I didn't just submit to it like an idiot, because I couldn't see the value in it, it never got to the top of the to-do list, because there's a million and one things to do, and there's people, and we're trying to run the business, and all that, and it's like, I've got to find some stock and some staff, and somebody to work this party, and do a rotor, and I ain't got time to put some pictures on a wall. That's what I thought about it. But in short, I just was disobedient. That's what I was. So then, rewind to me. We're in Paraguay. I'm, I'm talking to Robert and Cynthia, and I'm talking about instruction and following it. And, and I'm reminded in the back of my mind that there's this thing. Paul sat next to me. I'm reminded in my mind there's this thing that I hadn't done. And I went, I'm, I'm reminded even as I'm telling you that I've, I've not done this thing. And it was about six months ago. Immediately, Paul went, more like nine-some. That's all he said. And I love him for it love him for it because he pulled me up on it why because he knows for whatever reason it's going to release something somehow somewhere so he didn't just let me get away with it in front of them he, he, he just said right in front of everybody there's Robert and Cynthia and somebody else whoever else came with us was there but he like he loved me enough to just go yeah you still haven't done it and I know I've remembered probably longer than nine months you've probably been gracious but anyways <laughs> So I went, okay, I know, I'm sorry. All right, I'll sell that out. So then I went, okay. So in the car on the journey home, we got to the airport, I said, Paul, I got my phone, I said, Paul, tell me everything about this thing. Tell me what you've seen, what I'm meant to do, how I'm meant to do it. Just give me everything. I want to record it. I want to tell Faye about it. We're going to do it. And I did, and it's recorded, and uh, Matt's in the middle of making it all looking beautiful. In a few weeks' time, it'll be on the wall. The thing is this. I was looking to agree with it instead of just submitting to it. because I didn't agree with it, I didn't do it. But really, if I'd have just submitted to it, and got on with it, instead of being a wally and trying to find agreement in it, I, I don't know what it's going to release. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what that means. I just know that <coughs> Jesus gave me an instruction through somebody that loves me, and I should have just gone and done it. And I tell you, and I end with that story, because I don't want you to go away feeling bad about an instruction you've not done. So I end by telling you about an instruction I didn't follow but now I'm following. Because the thing about it is there is something incredibly powerful about submitting to an instruction and doing it, whatever it is. And of course some of them are more difficult than others. But I have seen in these last few months when people who heard an instruction that for them was hugely difficult it literally was life transforming and you, 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 there was no agreement in it at all it was like what well, i'm going to do that and that's going to release that nobody in their right mind would suggest that that was a thing to do but there was instruction so i want to encourage you because there is there is healing there is life there is every good thing available but often it's from instruction Nearly every time you see Jesus interact with people, he asks them to do something. Sometimes he asks them if they want to be well. But nearly every time, you know, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. Okay. Well, he could have just stood up in the tree. Remember, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's absolutely hated by everybody. He's like a Nazi. Today, he'd be classed as a Nazi collaborator. And they were not treated nicely at the end of the war. So getting down from the tree means getting in the Jewish people. Who hate him? No, you, you, don't, you just go, oh yeah, he's just, a, he's just a, no, he's not, he's hated. And getting, he's already been, everybody's seen him, so now they can chuck stones at him, and now Jesus goes, oh, you, you're going to get in the middle of everybody. Points him out in front of the whole crowd. I mean, it's amazing if you think about that, you know, because he had Matthew with him as a disciple, who were also a tax collector. Jesus is much more concerned... About bringing life than he's about what we think is our dignity. Imagine how Matthew got trait everywhere he walked. Imagine how the other disciples got trait for hanging out with Matthew. But shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your wonderful word. And I want to thank you for your incredible desire to heal and to restore and to bring life and to give us every good thing, Lord. And we don't always understand the hows or the wise, but Father, we are... I am asking, Lord, that you would remind us, each and every one of us, Lord, if there is some instruction, Lord, that you have given us, perhaps through somebody, that you would remind us, Father, and that we would move with the grace and faith that you have already put in our hearts, we would move towards it. And I thank you, Father. I know that when we act on those things... Somehow the Spirit of God just turns up and incredible things happen. So, Father, I am asking that out of the grace and faith we already hold, that we would, Father, move forward on that which you've said to us. And, Father, I just say, Lord, that the enemy won't put guilt on us or all that sort of nonsense. Father, this is not about that at all. This is about us getting into life. This is about being reminded of how we get into life and what we do to get into life because you want us into life, Jesus. Thank you, Father. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.